If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. We're moving on in our family portrait series. And, and in Genesis chapter 9, we're going to see a very different family portrait than what we saw last week, even though we're dealing with the same person. So if you remember back, if you happen to be here or you caught us online, last Sunday we received from keys, some keys for parenting in perilous times from Noah out of Genesis chapter 6. And those keys resulted in the salvation of, of Noah's sons and his entire family, for that matter, including his wife and daughter-in-laws. And there's a great picture in there for us because as Christian parents, the first and primary goal we should have for our kids is that they get saved. Now, not how well they do in school, how well they do in other activities, but their eternal destiny. That should be our primary goal. And Noah provided a great family portrait for us in that regard. But what we're going to learn today is that the salvation of our children, and our salvation for that matter, isn't to be an end, but the beginning of something much greater. I put that on your outline sheet. Our, our children's salvation, it's not meant to be an end, but the beginning of something much greater. You see, God's deliverance is always designed to bring us into a greater faith, greater consecration to him, and greater purpose for our lives. It's not God's plan for that salvation to be an end unto itself. But our nature is not set up that way. And sometimes after we complete something that we would consider an accomplishment and we get to, we get to check off that box, our nature tells us to take a break. I mean, sit back, take it easy. I mean, you deserve it, right? And in Genesis chapter six, Noah experienced a huge victory for his family. And they all got on that ark. And they were all saved because of it. But listen, that deliverance, that salvation was for a purpose. God had the next step in mind. And he always does. And the next step was an opportunity to recreate the world. To reestablish God's kingdom and to restore the entire human population as God had originally intended. You see, getting on the ark was just the beginning. But what we're going to see in our text this morning is that Noah missed his opportunity. And he got apathetic in his walk with God that was so strong in Genesis chapter 6. We talked about that at some length. And that apathy led him on a path of destruction. And so the title of today's message is The Path of Apathy. Because there's no doubt that being apathetic leads to a place that we don't want to go, especially within our families. And the primary reason is because it leads to missed opportunities. So, so listen, I, I just want you to think about this in, in maybe a way you've never thought about before. We need to think about our lives always in light of eternity, in light of what God is trying to do. So think of this, your marriage is an opportunity to show Jesus to the world around you. But an apathetic attitude towards glorifying him in our respective marriage roles leads many to miss it. And they miss the opportunity that God gives them. 
Having children is an opportunity to show Jesus to the world around you. But so many times, an apathetic attitude towards raising those children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord leads many to miss it. The truth is that everywhere we turn in our life, particularly to our family, God gives us opportunity after opportunity to drive into a greater faith, greater consecration, and a greater purpose. And yet, how many times do we miss it? How many times do we miss the opportunity that God just puts right in our lap? And I'm going to warn you, I'm a little fired up this morning. <laughs> As I was putting this message together this week, I've, I've become more and more impassioned on this issue. And this, this issue of apathy towards the thing of God and its effect on, on the family. And, and it, it is just incredible the, just how subtle Satan is and how our mind works and how we just kind of can slip into apathy. And there can be devastating effects on our family. And I've become convinced of, of a couple things, and, and, and this certainly isn't profound at all, but I, I'm convinced that our apathy towards the things of the Lord keeps us from being better Christians, having more God-centered families, and it's a limiting factor in the growth of this church and the impact we have on this community. And I'm not pointing fingers at anyone, I, I promise you, except myself. But I believe that God could and would like to do so much more in and through us but we limit him. We're a family. We need everybody. So when you're drawn away after the world, when I'm drawn away after this world, our families suffer, which means our church suffers. And then I'm convinced that, that our apathy towards the things of the Lord and having God-centered families, it's, it's primarily due to our love of this world. And I, and I started down this path a little bit last week, but, but I think I think we've just bought into this big old lie. Hook, line, and sinker. You see, the Bible very clearly states that this world and the way of this world is against us. This world is our enemy. Like, like God couldn't make it any clearer. Like, I, 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 I want to like tell you about, like, so like, you guys know the comedian Nate Bargatze? He has this skit on The Sixth Sense. If you haven't seen it, you should, you should, you should YouTube it. Neighbor Gatsi, Sixth Sense, the movie. And he has this skit, and it's like it was obvious all along. So I, I can't even tell you the joke. I would try to be funny, and it, it would be not funny. He's hilarious. But it's this. Like, it's, God couldn't make it any more clear. It's obvious all along. The world is our enemy. Ephesians 2.2 says, where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world. According, what is the course of the world? It's according to the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. And the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And listen very carefully to what Jesus says about this world in John 15, verses 18 and 19. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. 
The world hates you if you are a Christian. I, I, I can't make it any clearer. The world hates you. So, if you are a Christian, and the Bible says that this world hates you, then the question has to be, why do you love it so much? How do we get trapped into this wrong thinking? And the answer is because Satan is the ultimate deceiver. He got the fruit to sound and look good to Eve, and he's done the exact same thing to so many Christians today. And many folks have just bought it because it sounds good, and it looks good, and it smells good. And that is especially true when it comes to our families. And what is really important, and what is according to his word, and what is not. Because even within the church, I believe there is confusion on things like traditional roles in a marriage and family, on parenting styles, on discipline methodology, what our kids actually need to be well-rounded, all of it. And there's a lot of information out there on all of those topics, but listen to me very carefully. If it is of this world, can you trust it? Can you trust it from a source that hates you? I don't think we can. I believe more than I ever have that if this world thinks something related to the family is a good idea, it's probably bad. And if this world thinks something related to the family is a bad idea, then it's probably good. But we listen to the world all the time. And career counseling, and family planning, and all of it. And we just listen, and we soak it in. And we're like, that sounds good. Yeah, it sounded good to Eve too. But it wasn't. This world is our enemy. And it's fighting with all it's got to keep us from glorifying the Lord with our life and in our family. But that's so hard to see. And again, I'm not pointing fingers, I promise you. I'm just afraid that when we get to the judgment seat, we're going to be surprised by so much. And because many have been fooled, and we're blinded to the real truth of how God has designed families to his own glory. And as a result of this blinding, we've become apathetic towards the things that God actually deems important and the mission that God has given us. And we see a picture of this very thing in the life of Noah in Genesis chapter 9. And, and this family portrait shows us very clearly this path of apathy and how Noah moved away from the ways of the Lord, and, and then the devastating results of those actions. So by the time we get to Genesis chapter 9, Noah and his family, they're off the ark. That had happened a chapter earlier, and, and Noah was thankful to the Lord. They spent over a year on the ark, and he's thankful to the Lord. In Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 18, we read, And Noah went forth, he went forth off the ark. And Noah went forth, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. And Noah built an altar unto the Lord, and he took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Bible goes on to say that those burnt offerings were a sweet savor unto the Lord. He was pleased with Noah's offering. And he sets Noah on a journey. 
Because salvation, that deliverance wasn't an end, it was a beginning. And he sets Noah on a new journey, starting in Genesis 9-1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. It's very similar language, obviously, to the mission that God gave Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. God reiterates the mission again in verse 7, just in case they weren't listening the first time. He said, And you, be ye fruitful, and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply therein. But something happened along the way that took things in a wrong direction. So pick up the story in verse 18. This is our main text this morning. Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 25. We'll read those and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer and then, and then we'll learn what happened to Noah so that we can avoid it in our life and our families. Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 18. The Bible says, And the sons of Noah that went forth off the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah woke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. Now, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you today, and, and, and Lord, I, I feel this is an important message. And so, Lord, I pray that, that, man, you speak it as clearly as possible. And please move me out of the way. And, and Lord, that your word will go forth as, as it deserves um, and, and, and it, in an authoritative manner, Lord, that, that, is, um, that is strictly from you. And so, Lord, I just pray that everything that is said is true to your word. I pray that it's glorifying to you, and I pray that you use it in our lives as we need today. Lord, we love you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, before we get into the study, um, let me say that I'm well aware that the passage that we're studying today, you know, deals with some somewhat sensitive issues, especially considering we have some younger folks in the room. And, you know, I gave a similar warning a couple weeks ago, and I think we made our way through that okay um, at least I think we did. Um, so just know, if, if you're a parent and, and you're like, oh man, I know what this is about, oh oh, just know that I'll tread lightly and appropriately, um, I assure you. Um, now, that being said, I'm also not looking to avoid topics the Bible talks about. Now, the Bible is good for anyone of any age, and I make no apologies for that, but, but, but I will be respectful as possible in my approach. So with that said, what we just read is a, is, a, is a tragic story. It's quite tragic. It's a, a tragic story in the life of Noah, who was a, a great man of God, by the way, a great follower of the Lord. He's, he's found in Hebrews chapter 11 in, in what we might consider, you know, the hall of faith. But even great men, if not careful, have a tendency to turn apathetic in their approach to the things of God over time. If, if we don't stay on top of things. And I think this text shows us that Noah did just that. And, and here is why I say that. When Noah and his sons got off the ark, God gave them a very clear command. Right? What was it? Yes. Yes. Good job. As I, knew, I, knew, I knew I could trust you with that one. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. All right, but, but think about this for a second. 
did Noah actually fulfill that command? Did Noah himself fulfill that command? Well, no, he didn't. Not at least from what we see in Scripture. The Bible does not record Noah having any children other than the three sons who were born before the ark was built. And we just read in verses 18 and 19 that it was Noah's sons that, that did all that work. Genesis 9:18, and the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. We, we, we see why later, why that's noted. These are the three sons of Noah. Of them was the whole earth overspread, of those three sons. So all of the human race can be traced back to those three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now listen, maybe Noah was too old. Maybe God never really expected him to be a part of that. Maybe God was only talking to Noah's sons in Genesis 9-1. Actually, a case can be made for that even grammatically. I can't say for sure. All I know is that Noah was included in verse 1, and he's not included in verse 19. And that provides for us a picture, a picture of a man who once followed the mission, who was once involved in the things of the Lord and was excited about it in the face of intense opposition. But for whatever reason, he got off course in serving the Lord. And not against I'm sure Noah wasn't, you know, fighting contrary to the Lord. I'm sure he even still loved the Lord. I'm sure he still even showed up to church most Sundays. I mean, I know that's not a thing, but get the point. He just seemed to lose his focus a little bit. And because of that, he got careless. And the effects to his family were devastating. And unfortunately, this family portrait... Again, it's much different than the one we saw last week in Genesis 6. But sometimes our family dynamics change over time, don't they? You see, time and the influence of this world have a way of getting our focus off. And if that's you, I just want to warn you this morning by showing you the path of apathy. And here's where it starts. The first step down this path is the entrance of selfishness. The entrance of selfishness. You see, when we get off track in our life, it doesn't usually start with some blatant, overt, over-the-top sin that everyone can see. It starts with self, just a little bit of selfishness. And now I get it that selfishness is sin, but it's subtle. There's a downward path, and that's where it begins. Maybe it's thinking that you're missing out. So having a family can do that to an individual. It can do that to a couple as well. So obviously, getting married and having kids changed your life dramatically. Now, as God intended, it's for the better. But it changed your life. And what was once was just me, or what was once just me and her, is now something much different. And the same can be true of your walk with the Lord. It's easy to begin thinking as you're walking this path and, 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 and trying to follow God's plan and trying to spend the time necessary to build a relationship with God, it's easy to begin to think that you're missing out or you're just not fulfilled in that life. And you, and you begin to just want to keep some of it back for yourself. 
And listen, you know why those thoughts creep in? Because that's what the world is telling you. Even screaming it in your ear at times. Both as it relates to your family and serving the Lord. So let me give you an example. If you're a mom that decides to stay home and raise children, the world will tell you that's something inferior. Why wouldn't you work? Don't, don't you need some time away from those kids anyway? Don't you want to make a little bit more money for your family so you're able to do more things? And listen, I know what you're thinking, but this is not a judgment on whether moms should work or stay home. I'm not making that judgment. That's between the wife, her husband, and the Lord. I know what was right for my family. I do not pretend to know what was right for yours. But this is what I do know. Whatever the world is telling you, it's a lie. Now, if God is telling you to do that, then it's the truth. So praise the Lord. Do what God tells you to do. And God can tell different families different things. But do what God says. Just be careful that you're not making decisions for your family based upon what the world is telling you is best. Because at a minimum, the world wants you to at least consider things from a selfish standpoint. That's all it knows. And listen, that's just one example. There are many, many more we could talk about. But let me show you the picture. Let me show you how selfishness started in Noah's life. Look at verses 20 and 21. Genesis chapter 9. And Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. Now, verse 20 is a super interesting verse to me, mostly because of the word began. All right? That makes it really interesting to me. Um, I don't even know what all it means. We don't have time to go into some of it. But that word began is interesting. So he hadn't been a husbandman or a gardener before, but now he began to be one, right? You, you see that word began also in Genesis chapter 6, which is interesting. But anyway, he began to be one, kind of like he just picked up a hobby after he got off the ark. And he moved from being a herdsman to a husbandman. But, now, there's nothing wrong, I think we all know this, there's obviously nothing wrong with him becoming a husbandman in and of itself. There's certainly nothing wrong in verse 20 that, that tells us he shouldn't have done that. But it certainly turned wrong, and it turned wrong because of Noah's selfishness. You see, becoming a husbandman should not have been about what Noah could get out of it. The goal should have been what his family could get out of it. And when Noah got drunk, he abused what was meant to provide for and strengthen and encourage his family. He abused what God meant for good. And can I tell you that this is an absolute epidemic in Christian families across America. And our church is not immune. It's the selfish abuse of what God intended as good. And there's a picture there that we need to see. So, so let me give you another example. How many men abuse and become addicted to the job that God gave them? That he gave them to, to provide for their family. 
And something that God intended as a good thing for the entire family is now stealing from the family. Because dad's never home. And he's throwing himself into the job, trying to, to climb the proverbial ladder. And all of a sudden, his entire identity is wrapped up in his profession instead of his calling as a husband and a father and a servant of the Lord. Or maybe it's the pursuit of money or school activities for the kids. Whatever it is, if the priority it should have in your life and your family gets out of line and it becomes abused, then I promise you that the family suffers. And you've started down a path of apathy. And you may think, listen, my family's not suffering. We have more money than we've ever had. The kids are more popular, have more friends that they've ever had. And, and, and I'm not even doing it for selfish reason. I'm doing it for my kids. Okay, and while that may be true in your mind, can I at least tell you that your measuring stick is wrong? You're measuring the temporal when you need to be measuring the eternal. Like Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You see this measure right here? It says in Matthew 6.21 that for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And in Matthew 6.24, no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So it's all about whether your primary goal is to please yourself or please the Lord. Are you selfish or selfless? And I understand, listen, I live this same life you live. And I'm preaching to myself today, I promise you. And I know that both of those attributes reside within me. Selfishness and selflessness. I, I can show them both off very strongly at times. But the question is, which side dominates? And let me just tell you, the quickest killer of God's glory within a home or within a church is selfishness. It's the quickest killer of God's glory. When everybody just wants what they want or they make decisions based on what they can get out of it, you're asking for trouble. And I promise you the Lord's not glorified. Selfishness within a home kills momentum for the Lord because it becomes about you and not him. It's about your kingdom and not his. And I'm sure we're all well aware the Bible has a lot to say about selfishness. I don't even have to head down that road. But I will say it's the complete opposite of the ultimate picture, the ultimate example that Christ set for us. And as he gave himself in the most selfless act in human history. And Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Listen, that right there is the only way to build a home that glorifies the Lord. And Noah messed it up. He became selfish. And that led to the second step on the path of apathy. Because he started sliding. Since Noah was just thinking about himself, he, 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 he jumped on the proverbial slippery slope. 
And he started sliding down. And look at what happened. He drank the wine and got drunk. Look at verse 21 again. And he drank of the wine and was drunken. And he was uncovered within his tent. And, and now the point I'm making here isn't even really about alcohol. It's about the lack of soberness. That is the picture that we need to see. When we turn selfish, the next step is we quit thinking biblically or soberly and we make decisions that we otherwise wouldn't. Or, or let me just say it this way, we backslide. This is a progression. One step at a time. It doesn't start with these over sinful decisions. It starts with selfishness. But if not checked, the slide begins and we slide when we're not sober. We slide when we're not sober. And soberness in the Bible is always connected to our mind. For example, Titus 2.6 says young men Likewise, exhort to be sober-minded. There's a connection between sober and our mind and how we think. It is clear thinking because it's biblical thinking. And that's where this war against our enemies, where it rages. It's a battle of the mind. And how we think is what I was talking about earlier. Like what we think is important. Versus what the world is telling us is important. Do we examine, when we go through life and we're making decisions, do we examine it based upon the truth of what God's word said? Or do we examine it based on how we feel and make decisions that way? No, this is a battle of our mind and how we think. It is why our minds need to be renewed daily in God's word. That way we can trust what we are processing. And we can trust that we are processing those thoughts biblically instead of basing them off what the world is telling us. 2 Corinthians 4, or 2 Corinthians 10, I'm sorry, verses 4 through 6 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. And, and so, man, and so, so just think about that. Every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. How many things in, in this world, and, and they have science to prove it or, or, or whatever, studies to back it up, but it's against what the Bible has to say. That's a high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. You know, this isn't, this isn't even the topic of today, but the Bible tells us to spank our children. Now, there's all sorts of studies out there that'll tell you that that'll lead them to violence and and the negative impacts of that. There's a lot, a lot of research has been done on that. Now, there's a, there's a way to do it. There's, biblical spanking is not abuse. There's a difference. And again, it's not, even, it's not even the topic of today. But when you're making decisions, and the Bible clearly says one thing, and the world tells you something else that is exalting itself against the Bible, what do you do with that? How do you make decisions for your family? Do you think soberly and critically according to what the Bible has to say? Because this says to cast down those things. Anything that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. And if it's found in here, this is the knowledge of God. And you bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is filled. 
You see, the fight is against those imaginations and thoughts, and it's because imaginations and thoughts turn into actions. And actions that are against the knowledge of God, that are against what the Bible tells us, they're in disobedience to God. And they lead to sin. And Spoiler alert, that's where we're going next. But it starts with backsliding because you're not sober. And you're not sober because you started running the decisions you make through a paradigm of selfishness. Instead, we need to look through the prism of God's word and God's will. Ephesians 5, verses 17 and 18. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And listen, the truth is, in many ways, we as, as, as good fundamental Baptist Christians are just as unsober as Noah. Because some of you may never take a sip of alcohol but you get drunk on your emotions. And you can't control your anger and your jealousy, your discontentment. And you can't think soberly about the issues that bring about those emotions in you. And others of you might never take a sip of alcohol, but you're drunk on immorality. And you can't control your lust and your affections. And therefore, you do not walk in the Spirit. Because Galatians 5.24 says, And they that have crucified the flesh, they, they that are Christ, have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. But you can't do that. And you're drunk on them. And others still get drunk on affluence and covetousness. They're money drunk. And they just want more and more. Not to further the kingdom of God, but to further their own kingdom. So let me ask you, are you so intoxicated with something in your life that it keeps you from serving the Lord? It could be anything. If you're not thinking soberly, you become intoxicated with those thoughts. And you no longer place an emphasis on the mission of God within your family. And if you're doing that, it comes from having an unsober mind based out of selfishness. And that path leads to step number three, which I've already told you, that's sin. It's a downward path that keeps getting worse. For Noah, he got drunk and was uncovered. Look at verses 21 and 22. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And I, and I told you in the last point that, that this isn't even about alcohol, but, but I do want to be clear. Drunkenness is always a sin and forbidden in the Bible. Isaiah 5.11, Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink and continue until night, till wine inflame them. Romans 13.13 13 says, Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. 1 Corinthians 5.11 says, But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, for such and one, no, not eat. And that's where the path took Noah, to, to the sin of drunkenness. And he ended up naked and uncovered. And you can take the time on your own to look into what all that means. You can go to Leviticus 18 and... 
you know, and there's some insight into Leviticus 18 and, you know, something not so good happened. All because of sin. And listen, there are too many Christians out there that think sin isn't that big a deal. I mean, as long as we're not involved in, you know, gross sin, of course. But it's just not the case. God can't stand any sin because he's holy. He can't be in its presence. Psalm 5, 4 says, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. He can't even be in its presence. It's why Jesus died. It's what Jesus died to save us from. Sin always leads to death. Most of us know Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. James 1.15 says, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And if what I'm talking about describes you, you need to know that sin is going to ruin your life. It might not seem like it now. Maybe it feels like you're even getting away with it. But when it is finished, when sin is finished with you, after it chews you up and spits you out, you will be left naked and uncovered just like Noah. Listen, our sin is what Jesus died to save us from because our sin sends us to hell. So why, after we have been saved from sin, do we run right back to it? Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? We have been created for so much more. But look at the picture. Because it goes even deeper than just you. Because Noah's sin opened the door to his son Ham's sin. And we're not even going to talk about here what I believe Ham's sin was. It does not matter in this context. But verse 24 says, And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And, and that's a key phrase. He did something. Now, I do want to say, all the Bible says is that he saw and told. But whatever it was, Ham certainly sinned against his father in a very disrespectful way to the point in verse 25, Noah puts a curse on his own grandson, on Ham's son, Canaan. How sad. Think about that. Think about that situation. And he brings his whole family into the ark. They live in the ark over a year to see God's faithfulness come forth. And they, they come out of the ark and they, they thank the Lord and they give an offering. And then, not even that much longer, he's found himself in a place where he's cursing his own grandson. As by the way, are the first words that we hear of Noah. Verses 25 through 27 are the only words that we ever see Noah speak. First thing he does is he curses his grandson. What a terrible decline from a man of God, from so much that God had intended, from what God had planned. But don't think it can't happen to you. Don't, I don't think it can't happen to me. I can't ever get to a point to where I think it can't happen. 
And Noah goes from obeying the Lord and building the ark against great opposition to sinning and cursing his own grandson. And parents, here's what you need to understand from this point. Our sin opens the door for our children to sin. Our sin opens the door for our children to sin. You see, Ham made the decision to sin all on his own. But Noah's sin opened the door. He wouldn't have been in that position if Noah hadn't done what he did. And the ramifications of that sin are still being felt in the world today. Listen, our actions and our decisions can absolutely have a lasting negative impact on our children. And that's why it's so important to think with a sober mind from a position of selflessness and make decisions accordingly. Don't let your guard down because the enemy is always there, just waiting. And if he can take your family down along with you, he, trust me, he will do it. So don't go down that road. It's not worth it. There's too much risk. But there's a message here for the kids too. So, so all you teenagers, listen up to me right now because while Ham sinned, his brothers didn't. Look at verse 23. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. You see, in spite of what their father did, in spite of what their brother did, those two made the right decision. And they honored God and they honored their father because they loved him. Proverbs 10, 12 says, hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covereth all sins. And that's what they did. And Proverbs 17, 9 describes both sides of the coin, what Shem and Japheth did versus what Ham did. Proverbs 17, 9 says, he that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth the very friends. And that's exactly what Ham did. And the covering is what Shem and Japheth did. So listen, our love certainly does not cleanse sins. Only the blood of Jesus can do, can do that. It doesn't even condone sin. But it does cover sin so that the situation can be dealt with in honor and integrity and dignity. And that should always be our goal, to do right with love. And like I already said, this even applies to children, it's, it's all of our responsibility. You get to choose. Are you gonna follow Ham and just allow the sins of your parents to keep going in you, or are you gonna break the cycle? It doesn't matter what they do, good or bad. It doesn't matter what any of your other siblings do. You need to decide today that you are gonna live for the Lord and do right by him no matter what. And listen, because of their God-honoring decision, they were blessed while their brother's son was cursed. You see that? Again, verses 25 through 27. And please know this. Obedience always leads to blessing. But sin always leads to the next step down this path of apathy, and that is sterility. Sterility. Because look at the state of Noah. He was asleep. The beginning of verse 24 says, and Noah awoke from his wine. And that verse makes it very clear that this wasn't just a regular sleep. Noah was asleep because of his sin. He awoke from his wine. So you need to see the picture. 
Because when we are involved in sin due to being unsober and unselfish, and our lifestyle is caught up in that, we become unfruitful and useless for the Lord. When we get caught up in sin, we, we become unfruitful and useless for the Lord. Noah didn't have any more children. And it's just like we're asleep. And a couple weeks ago, I showed you how sleep in the Bible is connected to death. And that's the picture. Because while you are technically still spiritually alive through Christ, your life has no life. And you have no fruit. And you're asleep on the job. And listen, now is certainly not the time to be found sleeping. As we approach the return of our Lord, we need to be awake and fruitful, living his life through ours. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 5 through 8 says, Ye are all the children of the light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Don't be asleep. Watch, be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and love for an helmet, the hope of salvation. So you got to see there's a progression here, and we don't have time to develop it all, but, but I trust you see it just in the verses we read. There's a, there's a connection between sleep and drunkenness. There's also a connection between sober and watching or serving. So are you asleep or are you sober? Because there are ramifications for your family. Noah was asleep in his family portrait here in Genesis 9. But let's learn from him and not be asleep in ours. Because not only was Noah asleep, we do not hear anything more about him after this. After he curses Canaan and blesses Shem and Japheth, this is what we read in Genesis 9, verses 28 and 29. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. We don't have any clue on what happened with Noah after this event because the Bible doesn't tell us. But listen, that's the point. The Bible says nothing. It's like he was put on a shelf. And that's the thing about sin. If sin is not dealt with and not forsaken, it will cause God to put you on a shelf. And man, you do not want that to happen. The time is too short. The Lord's return is at hand. Romans 13, 11, and that knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. And this is so important because when Christ comes back for us one day soon, we will answer for our slumber or we will be rewarded for our soberness. And that brings us to the last step in this path of apathy because sterility and sleeping will ultimately lead to shame. That was how he found himself, naked and uncovered, in a state of shame. And that's what nakedness and uncovering and sleep brings. And again, you, gotta, you have to follow the progression. We don't have time to develop it for you, but shame and nakedness and sleep and drunkenness are all tied together in the Bible. And Noah's sin brought shame not only to himself but to his family. This happened in his tent, in his own house. What a shame that is. 
Habakkuk 2, verses 15 and 16 says, Woe unto them that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also, let thy foreskin be uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. You see the results of all this? The results of drunkenness and nakedness and sleeping. It's all shame. And we bring sin and sterility into our house. When we bring it, that's what we bring. We, you can't bring that and not bring shame with it. And even if it's not evident right now, it will be one day. Because like I said a second ago, one day soon the Lord is coming back for his bride. And when that day comes, we are going to stand before the Lord and answer for what we did in this life. Did we live it? in service to him or for ourselves? Were we persuaded by him or this world? The judgment that I'm describing, most of you know, it's a judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13 and 15, describe it like this. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. The fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. See, our works done in the spirit will be purified and beautified, but those done in the flesh will be burned and destroyed. And if we don't have anything left, we will stand before him what? Ashamed. Because we'll stand before him naked and uncovered, just like Noah was, with nothing to show. For this life that he gave us to bring him glory. 1 John 2.28 says, And now little children abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And listen, this whole connection between shame and nakedness, the judgment seat of Christ, is why I believe God gives this strong admonition to the Laodicean church in Revelation 3.18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. It's what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, when he says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon, with our house, which is from heaven, if so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. So this is a big deal. How do you want to stand before him? You get to choose. I get to choose. And the good news is we still have time to change our family portrait if we need to. Even if our kids are grown, we're still here. God hasn't come to get us yet. So there's still time. But we need to take Noah's warning. Because Noah left the world how he found it. God's plan was different. And it was wicked. It was wicked. And there were differences. But he didn't fulfill God's plan. And when God left, sin was rampant. You know what happened after Noah died? Babel. Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter 10. 
We're right back to Genesis chapter 6. I mean, he didn't do anything that the Lord had for him to do. The plan was to repopulate, reestablish God's kingdom. And he left the world as it was before. How about you? When you leave this world, is there a difference because you were here? Or is your family the same before you were even born? Do you get to, you have an opportunity to change for the good, for God's glory? Everything. You have a new family unit and you get to set the pattern. You get to set the path for that family. What's that family portrait look like in your house? And when you're gone, and when the Lord comes back, will there be a generation still serving the Lord because of the pattern you set? Or are you going to leave it like it was before? Man, don't be Noah. And, and, and again, so many people like Noah were used by him greatly. And they just didn't end well. Because they got apathetic. And they started listening to the world. And they bought into the lies. And they were never the same. The path of apathy is a path downward. And selfishness, sliding, sin, sterility, and shame. But the great news is, if you happen to be on this path, you can get off at any time. You just have to decide to reckon yourself dead to Christ and think soberly based on what the Bible has to say. And you make your decisions based on that. And if you do that, you'll be able to stand at the judgment seat unashamed because you were fruitful for the Lord in this life. And you can say, listen, there's a long line of people behind me that are different. I left the world a different place than how I found it. You can have the opportunity to change your family portrait for eternity. As long as we're here, there's always hope, but don't wait. <clears throat> if you are asleep now, use this message. Use today as a wake-up call. Because at the rapture, it will be too late. Wake up. Let's change now. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And I know that today's message was heavy. And, and I, I, I felt a burden in my heart all week because of it. And, and, um, and, and I know there's so much of this that, that I said today that I don't even have right in my life, that, that God's still working on me. But I know it's true. I know it's right beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I know it's God's word. And I know that that has to be our goal and where we strive is to live our life according to what his word says, no matter how we feel, for his glory. What an opportunity that is to give the God of the universe glory through our life, through the way we lead our families, through the way we raise our children, through the interaction of our marriage. It's an opportunity to give him glory. Don't miss it. Don't miss it.
And if you need to, to get right with the Lord, don't wait. Don't wait. If you're asleep, wake up today and get right with the Lord. And if you don't know him as your personal Savior, there's never been a time that you have placed your faith in his finished work. Don't wait for that either. Do that today. Today can be the day of your salvation, a day that will change your life forever. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for your word. And even in, in messages like this that are truly heavy and, 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 and don't feel good and, and uh, make us squirm, myself included, Lord, if they're true to your word, then, then what can we say but to God be the glory? And so, Lord, I pray that you work in our hearts and you work in our lives and you change us and you mold us into your image for your glory. There's so much more you have for us. There's so much more in front of us. But, Lord, if we live our life for ourselves, you can't get us to those points. And so, Lord, I pray for that. I pray for every person in this room. I pray for our families, for our, our fathers, for our mothers, for our husbands, for our wives, for our children. Lord, that we'll look to you and that you'll use us as family units and as a church family like you never have before for your own glory. We love you. We thank you. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.